Hello, listeners. Thanks for listening to Beckett's Babies. Um, we have a really exciting episode for you today. We are interviewing Raina Hardy, who is currently teaching at Interlochen Arts Camp, where I am also teaching. Yeah, I think you're going to find this episode really insightful, fun. She she is just, she was a real delight. I'll yeah. say that. Yeah, And she's a go-getter and mm-hmm. has two different shows up right now. So um, you should definitely check out her work. It's fun and it's scientific and very smart. Um, and I think you'll like it a lot. Yeah. And reminder again, folks, we are on the web. We are on social. Follow us, like us, share our episodes. And feel free to reach us out and reach out to us and ask questions. Um, maybe questions even um, for future guests like that we haven't asked and that you would like to know. Yeah, so. we love hearing from you guys. All right. Other than that, uh, enjoy the show. Sam Collier, and today we have a very special guest, Raina Hardy, who is sitting right here next to me at Interlaken. Um, so Raina Hardy is a playwright, and her plays, which usually contain magic and sometimes contain science, have been produced in Chicago, New York City, and London. Right now, she's got Stargazers up at Theater Nova in Ann Arbor until August 4th, so You still have some time to catch that if you live in Michigan. And she's in the middle of a fourth theater rolling world premiere of her play, Annie Jump and the Library of Heaven. She has her MFA from Missioner Center at UT Austin. And thanks for joining us, Raina. Thank you. We're so glad to have you on the podcast. I'm very glad to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So um, we like to start off by asking playwrights and others about their earliest memories. So tell us what your life was like before theater. Okay. That's, I was looking at that question and being like, what am I gonna say? Um, I feel like my earlier, like I think I started doing theater when I was a little kid, like as an actor. So definitely by the time I was eight and actually Mm -hmm. I think beforehand. So it's a little soupy before then. And I can't remember much before that time, but I don't know, like there was, there was like bananas with cream on them and Mm. uh, sunlight coming through a window. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's all there is before theater. Do you have any sense of how old you were when you were eating those bananas? I was eating those bananas continuously. (laughs) Oh, I see. I see. Two to six. With the sun perpetually shining through. Yeah, the sun was sometimes there, sometimes not, but frequently the bananas were. Um, That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I don't and know. Then, I, and then you got into theater pretty early, it sounds like. Yeah. I think the first thing that I was super into, I did, I, I probably did some, some, 
I don't know, after school classes or summer camps, I have very vague memories of them. But the one that I started when I was eight and then did it till I was 13 so that I remember it really clearly was a summer camp uh, called the Young Shakespeare Players, where every summer we just do a Shakespeare play. And so when I was eight, I was in Hamlet and I was Horatio and I was adorable. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. <laughs> There's pictures. I was really cute. Where where did you grow up? Chicago. Chicago? Okay. And you have family in Chicago? Yeah. So all of my people are from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And then my mom and dad moved to uh, Chicago. Then mm-hmm. uh, that's where I grew up the whole time. And that's where I live now. Kind of a homebody. So how did you shift from being Horatio in Hamlet at the age of eight, which is fantastic, to writing your own plays? When did that start happening? Uh, I think college. Yeah. It was like one of those intolerable little kids who's always like, oh, I'm going to write and create and come up with stories all the time. Listen to me, like just constantly unstopping. Um, and so I think um, I think you wrote my first full-length play, full-length play in college. Before then, I had written like a bunch of, you know, it's just like, I'm going to write everything hard. Um, just I resent myself now. <laughs> like, oh, stop. <laughs> um I don't know. I guess I'm just being mean to myself arbitrarily. (laughs) Uh, When I actually look back at myself again, I was probably pretty cute. Um, But yeah, I wrote my first uh, full-length play in college, uh, and I think I I received slightly too much encouragement by winning awards, and I kept doing it. Um, What was that first play about? um, (laughs) It was about... This is inappropriate. Uh, it was about like a college professor uh, who, um, and it was about like sex. It was about like this college professor in her late thirties and sex. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it when I was like nineteen. What a strange thing to have done. Um, but uh, I, I, I had this kind of vision of like in sort of very like, like powerful and like. Uh, like powerful in terms of how she articulated things like a woman who at that time seemed like impossibly like adult age. Um, And uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I was mad at a boy when I started it. I actually started it here at Interlochen. I wrote a, I wrote a, yeah. That's so cool. I know. I wrote a, you should mention that, but it just occurred to me. I wrote a monologue as part of a prompt. I took a playwriting class, like a one hour playwriting elective where we just get these prompts and, and I, uh, I think I was, for no very good reason, he actually hadn't done anything at all. I think he hadn't, like, sufficiently proven his attraction to me by suffering enough. So, <laughs> so I uh, wrote this um, monologue where I had, like, a, you know, this, this very sort of powerfully, like, smart and mean woman yell at a boy. Um, that was funny. And so people liked it, and they did it in the little show in the opera tent and then later on I expanded it into my first full-length play wow that's really cool what was that feeling like seeing your play for the first time like hearing it out loud and performing for the first time when I was you mean when when I was at camp and the the, uh, people did it or later um no yeah that's yeah uh early like the first time the very very first time 
it was great. I got laughs, mm. and I wanted more. <laughs> yeah, it's addictive. Yeah. It's addictive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I loved that the uh, actor liked the actors liked the monologues, and so they came up and said, "Oh, those were so good." Mm. So again, praise, praise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are all, I think, in the theater world, <laughs> addicted to praise. Well, if you get a good positive reaction, you just sort of lean into that more and you're like, follow yeah. that uh, trajectory. I'm all about those positive comments. Uh, Sarah, I think you're great. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I think you're doing such a good job hosting this podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm going to lean into that more. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so, what? Well, your process like in writing a new play what's like what what do you start with with an idea do you start do you have multiple journals I don't know it's always different mm-hmm. and I never feel like I'm doing enough um yeah usually an idea and I, I I feel like the process keeps changing for every play and I never like work it out so that it actually works uh a thing that I've done several times but that I'm not sure that can work, but just like when it doesn't, it's sort of devastating. Um, is is to uh, uh, have like a really hard deadline, and then have like three days where I have nothing else to do, and then then I just write the play. Um, and when that happens, and it it usually happens, like you know, for instance, uh, Stargazers, which is uh, in Ann Arbor right now. That was a play that I wrote again very quickly. I had like um, I had like a monologue in an opening scene and uh, I had gotten a, a commission for it. Um, and then my dad died suddenly. Um, and so I wrote the guy and I was like, Hey, I know you wanted this draft, you know, a month from the first rehearsal reading, but my dad just died. So you're, you're, you're not getting it. And he's like, Oh God, I'm sorry. And I'm like, great. Awesome. It's very practical right after my dad died. Um, and uh, there was just like a lot to do. There's mm. a lot to do in a pair of dies. Um, and then, uh, then I looked up and I was like, oh, it's like, it's like three days before the first rehearsal. I guess I should probably write it. Wow. Uh, yeah. That's so an I incredible story. <laughs> so I wrote it. And then I've done that. That's maybe like, I've done that like maybe three times. Not every time my dad died, but like there was yeah. always some kind of, you know, good reason. When for Annie Jump in the Library of Heaven, I actually did it on purpose. I was like, I have all this other stuff to do. Um, I'm going to get a hotel room for three days and I'm going to write this play. That was great. That's awesome. One thing I have figured out about that, which I don't think I should keep leaning on that as a process uh, at all. Like it, there has to be like actors in a room waiting for the script for that to work. Um, And also like two days is not (laughs) enough time. (laughs) You know, Paula Vogel talks about, she has two plays where her process was to go to, you know, a cabin in the woods or something for a week and write. And then a week later or two weeks, I don't know, emerge with a play. And she's done that twice. And the plays were uh, the Baltimore Waltz and how I learned to drive. Mm. I think I'm getting yeah. this right. And she says for those two plays, she has never changed them after that. After she came out of the cabin with a complete play, um, she did not do any revising or editing to either of those. And, and she says there's something about, you know, that concentrated time devoted to a new play where 
it um, it just becomes so fully itself that to try to go back and tinker with it is either not necessary or or wouldn't be beneficial. Um, but I I agree. There's something really different between writing a play quickly mm. and it, it where that's all yeah. you're doing as opposed to over many months, which I've also done and is a And you know, I'm guessing she had no Wi-Fi at the cabin. Probably no not, Sarah. No smartphone, <laughs> none of that junk. And she just sat yeah. there. Well, because this was decades yeah. ago. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure Wi-Fi didn't even exist. Right. So... Yeah, no, it's true. We should all just unplug and yeah, totally. write better plays. But it's it's hard. Well, the, Sam actually twice in a row has challenged me to like be off Facebook in July, and it's great. It's very helpful for some reason to have Sam tell me to do it. Um, <laughs> for the record, Raina asked me to tell her <laughs> to go off. <laughs> I have also, I, I tend to agree with what Sam said, because I've also done, you know, writing a play over several months, um, plays that have been reasonably successful, but they have had to be rewritten much more extensively than yeah. the ones I've written super mm. fast. Much more extensively. I have touched the ones I've written super fast. <laughs> um, okay, so we've talked a bunch on this show about rejections, and we like to ask playwrights how you handle rejections, and do you have a special... Um, ritual or anything you tell yourself or do you ignore them or do you aspire to ignore them tell us about your relationship to rejections so I have I have like I kind of slid it into two two parts I I sort of almost feel like most of the time when I get rejections I'm like yes excellent I've gotten a rejection because it means that I didn't forget to apply to something. Um, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I just like, just like eat them. Like it's great. And I actually sort of have gotten myself to a place where most rejections I do enjoy, but that sort of only applies to like, I guess, uh, you can't, I can definitely be hurt by a rejection, but only if like my hopes have been gotten mm. up. So, like, I think I, I went through a period of trying to sort of, like, connect with, like, this is a long time ago, so I've kind of gotten over it. Like, you know, people say, like, oh, like, connect with, like, theater companies and let them know you as a person, like, in your hometown. I tried to do that in Chicago. Like, man, it didn't work and it hurt, you know, because I was, like, putting myself more personally into it. And as much as that's probably a good strategy for some people, you know, uh, it definitely was more emotionally difficult. Um, and, and yeah. Well, like, I think that <laughs> technique, maybe that works. I mean, there's so many playwrights in Chicago. Yeah. And it might be different to try to do that in a, in a smaller town or a yeah. smaller city. I've done so much better outside of Chicago than I have. Yeah. I have like three productions in Chicago uh, two of which I was personally involved in, and then the majority of the others have been outside of the city, which is great. I love, like, I've learned so much from, like, Chicago theater and seeing a ton of Chicago theater, and I, like, completely love it and adore it. Um, but just, yeah, it's not quite a place where I've had a lot of plays put on. <laughs> Yet. Yes. Thank you. 
Well, that's cool to hear you say, though, that you have come to a place where you actually enjoy rejections. Yeah. I mean, how did you get there? I don't know. Just so many. I know, like, the the cold, (laughs) I just, there's so many. Like, I very, I think I never really went through a period of being hurt by the ones that were totally over the transom, because I just assume, like, nothing's going to happen. P.S. I love that you just used the phrase over the transom. Yeah, what does it mean? Oh, okay, my mom told me this. This is a total digression. Over the transom, it came in over the transom means it came in over the door, the top of the door in old buildings um, before air conditioning. They would circulate air by having these um, kind of long rectangular windows that opened up over the door. I had one in my Chicago apartment, actually, when I lived in Chicago. And so it came in over the transom means um, like somebody slid it in over the door without opening the door or saying hello. I love it. I didn't know that and I keep using that phrase. It's a great phrase. Now Let's bring I, it back. I've never heard of it until back. now. And you explain it to me <laughs> and wow. <laughs> so cool. It's such it. a great phrase. Anyway. Um, I'm so, my mind is blown. Yeah, so I think I almost immediately when I started looking at like trying to find like submission opportunities, I pretty like I never even like, I don't know, I just it became such a tick to um, it became such a tick for me to, you know, say, okay, like, I'm knocking this off. This is a good thing that I'm doing. And so when I get the rejections, it means that like it's going somewhere. And, yeah. and I've always had a decent, it's never felt like I'm doing it for no reason. It's always felt like, yeah. okay, I put a certain amount in and I get a certain amount back. Like it's proportionally very small compared to what I put out. But basically, as long as it was like low effort and low emotional investment at the beginning, then I'm not super upset about it. It's like just when you're like a final. And then when it gets more personal, yeah, that's been harder. But I think that I've kind of, I was able to adapt that impersonal um, feeling when, I, when I'm when making appeals to individuals that are humans. Like, hey, I'm like, oh, so what's up? And like, hi, here's me. Here's my work. All right, cool. And I never care if you never talk to me again. It's mm-hmm. okay. You don't have to. Because if you, it's like you can't guilt people into talking to you. Right. And it is true. It is going to be okay if they never talk to you again. Right. It's fine. <laughs> it's absolutely fine. Um, Man, when yeah. you talked about um, how I think where you do feel kind of bummed out is like when your hopes are gotten up. And then I I just remember, I'm not going to say the name of this person or the name of this prestigious festival but it was like I remember this promise I had almost like hey like send your play it could be like the most messiest broken play you've got and we'll give you the time to rework and write it and put it up in a reading you know I send my play and no response cricket Uh, nothing and then literally I'm like oh the festivals has happened. What's going on? And literally a week later, like, hey, Sarah, thanks so much for your play. Um, like, keep on writing, you know. Oh, my and God. Like, and I was just like, wow. You know, I was like, no response there. I I just remember, like, like just, like, fuming. I'm like, wow, this is, like, cringe moment for me. And it's awkward. And, ugh. But do you think that means that, People in the theater should just never make yes. promises. Never. Because, <laughs> because I think maybe really the problem there is the promise mm. and not the and not the follow-up. Because 
I mean, they should have told you before the festival happens, Mm -hmm. obviously. But sometimes the people who make the promise actually don't have the power to follow through. Yeah, And I think I'm imagining this person was with position, like just needed a bunch of work and probably just like sent out a call to open call to everybody. Got a bunch of, and they'll just kind of pick the top faves or whatever. But it's like, I don't know. It's, yeah, don't make promises you can't keep. And get out of here. <laughs> I'm so annoyed on your behalf right now. And now I have so many complaints I want to make. I don't know if we'll make the podcast. <laughs> make them. Make them. Oh, I'm going to make them. Yeah, no. Uh, this is this is so petty on my part. Um, we love petty. Okay. We're, so that's why we're called Beckett's Babies. <laughs> true. Because we whine. This is like, my my most my most popular uh, tweet among playwrights. Now I'm sorry, this is another digression. My most popular tweet amongst playwrights was recently. It was like, "Why are you asking for a ten page sample? It's a PDF. Just stop reading." <laughs> <laughs> oh. And every playwright in me was like, "Like retweet. Stop reading. Ah, making all these files." That is yeah. a really good question. I wonder. I wonder why. Is it because they don't want to? print out i mean do people are people generally printing things out i don't know just like one through ten just print one through ten yeah i don't don't think they thought it through it's hard it's more work for them too here's what i will say though sometimes they want you to choose the best 10 pages rather than the first 10 Mm -hmm. pages and so i think some i think maybe p73 does this or some opportunity i've seen where they say you know Give us a 10-page sample that where you think the most exciting thing is happening, and that might not be the first 10 pages. And so it's kind of giving you an opportunity to choose what they will read since you know they're not going to read the whole play. That's true, yeah. In the first round. That makes sense. That's fair. And I understand that sort of, but also I will probably never choose that. Yeah. <laughs> you will never choose a different 10 pages the first time I have to explain it and it's like right and then I can I can send you the climax but to me I'm like how the climax is good because of stuff that I set up it's not going to be good by itself yeah so I mean I can see I can see situations where you would do that like if if there's almost just if it's almost like if you have a musical it's easy to pick like the best song you know, so there might be a section like that, but I'm also part of why I handle rejection well is because I try not to put an amount of. I try to. It doesn't sound particularly helpful, help like healthy, but I try to like think reasonably about like yeah the reward return on doing stuff. Yeah, so I'm actually mm-hmm. super busy, um, and some application processes are super involved and complicated, and so you put a lot of work into those applications. And so those rejections feel worse, perhaps. Or you just, or you just don't do them. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'm, I'll be very like cold about it. If, if, if it's a big prestigious thing where you get a lot out of it and you're asking me to do a lot, then yeah, maybe I'll do a lot because I feel like I should. And there's, there's a chance, even if it's small of it really helping me, but if the opportunity probably isn't going to lead to much, even if I get it, then I'm probably not going to go through a lot for it. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty judgmental about opportunities that I bother to submit to. Yeah. Um, I think that's, 
savvy. I don't think that's petty at all. Oh, well, what I was going to say was petty. Oh. I got to try to, this, is, <laughs> this is my pettiest complaint. If I get a rejection letter that's like, oh, please don't take this as a reflection on your work. <laughs> we had so many, you know, like what, that if I get her, and this is very petty, this is very I petty. I think that's nice when they say that. See, that's They're why. They're crying. I know. And, and I should take it in that spirit. But I, I and so I don't, I'm only, I, that's why I practice it as petty. I will stand, I will stand by the, um, the just stop reading complaint. But when it comes to like the, and this is very personal, right? I'm like, come on, man. I'm not, I'm tough. I can handle it. You don't have to treat me like I'm going to get, like I'm going to cry because I didn't get something. But you're a playwright. <laughs> very, yes, no, that's right. Because I'm very, and this sometimes, yeah, people think I'm very, I'm fairly like gritty and hands-on about stuff. And sometimes I'll get like, you know, notes from people that I'm working with where they're like, well, you feel this and then just like the world of the play and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, right. And I'm like, why are you giving me this note? And then eventually I figure out it's because like they can't like afford a set piece or they need mm-hmm. to have like, <laughs> it's like some technical thing. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'll just rewrite it. I'll write out the door. I can do that. Right. Just don't like, they're like, oh, I don't want to have like a different set. Fine. That's easy. That's <laughs> a really, yeah, that that's a really good point. Sometimes I think people other artists in the process might think we're more attached to things mm-hmm. than we are. And, and I've had that experience too, where, you know, the director came to me with a note about how, you know, how she's trying to work with an actor on the line. And I'm like, look, if the, if it wasn't even a line, it was a stage direction. I said, let's just cut the stage direction. <laughs> Problem solved, you know? Um, but then other times something is really important and, I do wonder if I'm expecting the director to read my mind and know which ones are important and which ones can be rewritten. Yeah. And so maybe that's, yeah. That's good that they check. It, it, um, I, think I think it's the playwrights that are so sensitive about their words that's giving a bad rep for everybody else. <laughs> it's probably true. The more I work with a particular director, like the more straightforward, like they get to be with me. Like Rudy Ramirez, yeah. I work with a ton, and he'll just be like, and and like he'll just tell me what he needs, and then I'll just do it, and mm, I'll tell him yeah. what I need. Uh, but that's part of why it's good to collaborate with people again because you yeah. come up with a really good working vocabulary. Right, those relationships are so important because mm-hmm. you can stop worrying about each other's feelings, <laughs> <laughs> just speak candidly to each other. Right. Well, I mean, this is the important thing I've actually learned about collaboration. And I I have like a little like end of course collaboration unit where like I can really tell what actual collaboration is happening um, when you when you actually can fight and have a disagreement and like deal with it uh, because you respect your collaborator enough to know that they care about the work, too. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I took a picture of the kids like working and I was like, this is what collaboration works like. I can tell because you're like doing this with your hand. <laughs> like I could hear it. It was happening. And what did it sound like? It just it was it sounded like, no, I did this. Oh, oh, okay. All right, but what do you think about that? Oh, oh no, 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 like listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry. Right. I forgot. Like <laughs> I could, I could probably have made those like wah-wahs 
like in Charlie <laughs> Brown. Cause it just like, it was like, it was not, it was not a fight that came to a standstill, but it was like disagreements happening and people like realizing they were wrong and like admitting it and like being convinced and like, like actually listening and communicating. I was really proud of them. Do you think Raina, you could lead a class on collaboration for the U S Congress? Oh. <laughs> I think this skill would be readily transferable to um, our political divide. <laughs> I'm making faces. Um, I will say that I think you can always collaborate as long as you have reason to believe that your collaborator has cares about the work and has a goal that is reasonably aligned with yours, well which is said. to make a thing. <laughs> that was truly <laughs> diplomatic. Um, I think it might be. Well, I mean, yeah, like, let's be real. You have to assume a certain amount of like good faith. Mm. I think all of us have occasionally found ourselves in situations with collaborators whose goal is not to make a good piece of art. It's something else. And you can't work with them. Even when it's like a good goal, even if their goal is just to have like a nice calming process, mm-hmm. I guess that's better than someone whose goal is to make themselves feel powerful. Right. Um, but it's still not going to lead to the same kind of, of good work. So, yeah, no, I, I just want to underscore though, that I think, um, teaching young artists to be able to have messy and difficult conversations about their work is one of the most important things they, that we can do as teachers. So kudos to you. That's a warm fuzzy. (laughs) So let's say I'm done. She brings the warm fuzz. (laughs) (laughs) Just like Grover. Sorry. I'm thinking about Sesame street right now. Let's see. Um, so what are about plays that you love that you can't get from any other form of writing, like screenwriting or novels or poetry? So, so many, so many things, actually. Mm-hmm. And I've written so much about this. Uh, I, I, like, the, the, the top thing is obviously that, like, it is, like, an alive and dangerous communal experience, which will occasionally happen when you go to the movie theater and see a movie. Sometimes things can get unexpected under those situations um but it's it's being out it's being with other people it's more alive um like it's 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 the kind of thing we cannot survive without um and it's more effort and it's more energy but like we will die if we don't have it and you can drink um and it's fun not sad um uh but uh oh yeah that sounded worse than it did but like i you know it's like it's a it's a key we're 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 keying into the dionysian aspect of it right and that Mm -hmm. that's part of it um the other thing about it that i love is uh i think a lot about like ways of seeing right and uh like other worlds and like i wrote my like thesis uh just like at Mission, like you write a, a thesis that's just like an essay about your own work. Mm-hmm. I think yeah, we had to do that at Iowa. Yeah, it's just a weird thing grad student writers have to do is just be like, now we're gonna write an essay about my <laughs> my work. <laughs> it's like gonna be thirty pages long <laughs> about me. Uh, it was hard but interesting, and I work so much in like genre and like in fantasy and sci-fi genres. And I just have this like sort of obsession with um, things not being as they appear and there being like other worlds and this idea of these like other worlds is 
metaphors. It's complicated. It took me 30 pages to explain it. But that is something that is uh, like alive and physical in theater um, because you're so frequently say like showing something to somebody and saying, now see something else and now make that work in your head. Um, and that's something you can, again, attempt in other art forms, but uh, theater just does it with like bodies and objects mm-hmm. that are right there. Um, and to me, mm. that's amazing. That seems like a good segue into your play, Annie Jump in the Library of Heaven, which I just read. Uh-huh. Um, and it seems to me something that is inherently best told on stage. Um, you're, you would probably give a better one sentence synopsis of the play than I would having just read it. So would you briefly uh, just kind of sum it up for our listeners? Sure. I'm actually kind of bad at this, but I have. It's okay. (laughs) So we all are, but I believe in you. Thank you. It's a, it's about a um, 13 year old girl named Annie, who is a science genius. And she lives in a tiny town called Strawberry, Kansas, and her life is difficult uh, because her father is the town weirdo because he's obsessed with aliens. And it's about what happens when Annie is contacted by an actual alien intelligence that uh, falls down from the sky one night while the Pleiades are falling uh, over this tiny little town of Strawberry, Kansas. Uh, And it manifests itself as basically uh, Regina George, um, a like beautiful, uh, you know, sort of mean um, uh, teenage girl who's actually a, you know, hyper-intelligent, like, aspect of a supercomputer who's, like, come to Earth to tell Annie Jump that she's, like, the chosen one and that now uh, she has to let this this manifestation of the Library of Heaven, which she calls herself as a... um, a, a, a audiovisual manifestation of a mindful of an intergalactic mm. supercomputer, like guide her life mm. and, and, and tell her what to do so that she can become a, a great scientist and invent the technology of uh, interstellar communication. It's such a fun play. And I think um, the way that you play with just kind of the stuff on stage and also the big ideas is is really appealing and delightful. I'm just wondering um, where the original idea for that play came from. Did you start with an image or the story or the character? This one I know exactly where it came from, which is good. Uh, and this is another one of, this is the play that I uh, got a hotel room for three days my last summer of grad school. Uh, I had been working on a different play for most of the summer and for that play, I had uh, reread um, a book called Coming of Age in the Milky Way, which is a really fun book. It's a history of humanity, basically, through scientific mm. thought. That cool. Is, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's like it's very, in a, you know, it's very pop science if you like to learn about personalities while you read. And the last bit of it had this concept of the universe evolving a consciousness for itself, you know, through intelligent life, like communicating this idea, oh, can, like the universe could become self-aware. And in a, the second time I read it, it collided in my head with like a radio story I'd heard years and years ago. Because I, I hear something cool, I can't usually directly translate it into a play. It has to like 
hit something else. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's just a thing. I can't write about that. It exists. So it has to hit something else to become something different for me. And those two things, the this idea of this intergalactic supercomputer um, and this uh, guy talking about how his dad was trying to communicate with aliens just flashed in my head. And then all of a sudden there was like Annie and Althea, ah. like right there. And that, mm. that that's all I knew. I started writing it. I didn't really know it was going to happen. I just had like a few world building things and then the plot just went boom. It was so easy and I really wish that would keep happening because <laughs> it usually doesn't. But um, but it was an amazing uh, experience to write. And I did the whole thing while the, the Pleiades were falling. And it seems like, so you say at the beginning of the play, a play for people of all ages. Oh, so or some, I said Pleiades. And can you edit this entire thing? It should be Perseids. Oh, I have not had enough coffee. <laughs> oh my, I'm the Perseids. The, the Pleiades, Pleiades don't fall. The Perseids, Pleiades are, there might be. The Pleiades is a constellation. It's a constellation. They're, they might have an associated meteor shower or not. I don't know, but the Perseids. <laughs> Got it. Perseids are a meteor shower. Yeah. That is okay. Yeah. That they're also in the, they're also in the play. Oh no. But, um, <laughs> but you say at the beginning, it's a play for people of all ages. And I, I was reading it thinking, you know, this would be great for a middle school audience. It'd be great for a high school audience. It'd be great for me. You know, um, I, <laughs> it'd be great for um, people really of all ages. I think it speaks to adults and it speaks to young people um, with equal um, kind of sophistication and emotional depth. And was that your intention from the beginning? Did you set out? planning to write a play for younger people or adults and it kind of became that or how did that happen? I don't know. Uh, this is definitely one of those plays that made its own decisions. Uh-huh. Uh, so I don't know what I set out. I think I knew from the beginning that I was going to be using these like sort of young adult novel conventions and playing with them yeah. like pretty explicitly. Uh, no spoilers, but um, uh a hallmark of the young adult genre, which is a book genre, right? A marketing segment is that it's about uh, people looking for their place in the world, usually. Uh-huh. Um, and then sometimes they also usually, like, they'll, people will mess with them a little bit, but, like, really hyper-conventionally, they should have a romance, so they didn't really do that. But this, this idea of, like, looking for your place in the world... Um, books for slightly younger, like the middle grade and like younger audience is often about like dealing with a world where things are dangerous, sort of, or like where adults have control over you in some way. Yeah. Um, And young adult, like, so there's certain like young adult conventions about like, here's me, here's this like world, where do I fit in it? What effect can I have on it? Like, who am I? And usually, you know, there's this like chosen one narrative as well. And I immediately wanted to like take that and put it into this idea of like this girl needing to learn all of the science (laughs) Um, and also having her, having her guide instead of being like some sort of, uh, you know, mentor figure being this, um, this kind of uh, idea of like the, the pretty popular girl who is sometimes like viewed as an adversary, but in this case being, you know, the, the main person who is helping her. I also love to write stories about like uh, um, 
mentor slash helper figures who are kind of complicated. And I uh-huh. think Elfie is that. All of this is to say, I don't know. I knew I was doing the YA things. Um, and I kind of, after I wrote it, I was like, I want to make, sh- this should be accessible to kids because I want them to, I'm trying to propagandize <laughs> them a little bit. <laughs> um, and I, and I, well, you know, yeah, so it's one of the theater, man. We have some work to do yeah. right now. Um, and um, it's tricky because this is not a segment that really exists in theater. So what Sam said made me feel great because that's what I would like it to actually be. I didn't aim for it. It made its own decisions. But like, it's been tricky because all the theaters that have wanted to do it have been like, adult theaters. Ah, okay, that's interesting. It's too old for most. Yeah. Like for young for, kids. Yeah, for TYA. Yeah. Most TYA theaters go for younger kids. And it is like that like college audiences respond really well to it. Um, well, I've said this yeah. before on this podcast and I will say it again. I think that we are at the very beginning of what will be a renaissance or a maybe not Renaissance because that suggests it has already existed, a new era of theater for young adults, by which I mean, like, you know, the kind of 12 to 15 age range, maybe even younger, maybe even older. I just think that would be really cool. And that's what I want to happen. So I'm, I believe it's going to happen. Do you have evidence of it happening? Because that'd be awesome. Um, well, I just feel like it's... <laughs> I just think it's in the air and, you know, plays like yours seem to me to be signals that something Mm. like this is coming along. So that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. That's awesome. Yes. I love that. Definitely what Sam said. I want to happen that, that like, like a Pixar movie is something you can Mm. take your kids to and that everyone will go see. Right. And that is great. Right. Uh, it would be great to have more of that. Cool. Um, so I guess before we move on to glistens, um, do you have any advice that you want to give to our listeners who are interested in playwriting? Do you have any, like a mantra that you tell yourself? I do. Well, I have a mantra that I tell my students usually at the end, um, which is because most of my students are uh, they're into theater and they spend a lot of time waiting for permission to do stuff uh, to get cast or to have somebody like choose them yeah and so I try to tell them that uh, and honestly I almost feel like most of them are they're starting to know more like there's but there are so many so many um teenagers are so good at like just going out and doing stuff on social media and so I think my my mantra for them is getting less and less necessary but it, I want to let them know that it applies to theater as well so you don't have to like wait for anyone's permission you have yourself you have your friends you can usually get access to a space somewhere and then you can learn to communicate using theatrical techniques and that makes it very, very hard for anyone to silence you. I love that. That I mean, bravo to that. And Do you does that come from a place of um, you having to learn that yourself, or did somebody tell you that early on? 
I had to learn it myself and I wish I'd figured it out earlier. I, I didn't figure it out till college. I put on a, my play and I, uh, I just was like, oh, I could just do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's hard. And I, and I have to go like forage in the field and I have to like, I, I gave myself hypoglycemia because I stopped eating. What? Like not, you know, just like I was so, I was just like, I would forget to eat because I, I was, a, I don't really, I was a very irresponsible senior in college. I like, I have no idea what I did, but I was going around like making this play happen. I was waiting in people's offices, you know, and then just like eating candy out of the bowl. And then I would come home and my <laughs> roommate would have baked a cake and I would eat that. And then I like got <laughs> like, just like not have an actual meal because I was oh off God. a meal plan. And then like, I, and then like I got, I gave me some wow. hypoglycemia. <laughs> this is not part of the mantra. Wait, yeah, nice. sorry. I shouldn't have said any of that. <laughs> but the point is I got the play on. And then also I went to a nutritionist and she was like, for Pete's sake, eat breakfast. And I was fine. Um, but, uh, yeah, don't give yourself hypoglycemia, but do like, just go and and, like fight for yourself and and create, but eat a a balanced breakfast. That's That's wonderful (laughs) advice. I'm so sorry. No, I love it. It's Mm. really good. I think that's a great piece of advice to end on. Eat breakfast. Playwrights. Yeah. Get, get some protein in there, too. So shall we move to glistens? Yeah. Um, Raina, so glistens um, on part of our show is this kind of a, uh, a memorable moment or something you've learned, uh, something you've discovered, just like pretty much anything. Like last time I talked about artichokes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so good. I, they are, oh, my God. They're really good. Um, so, yeah. So I guess um, – I'll start with glistens. Uh, my glisten is, um, I think Sam, you recommended this podcast to me, and I just like finally got to listening to it. it was to the best of our knowledge. Oh, to the best of our knowledge. Yeah, yeah. I, I started listening to it. It's amazing. And there was an episode I was listening to called the like your unique voice, and there was a segment on vocal fry. How like associated, how it's associated with women, and and I went through this like weird spiral and looking up vocal fry, and like I was like thinking of situations where my voice does gets like vocal fry, you know, and I'm like, oh my goodness, like, and those situations is when I'm talking um, to male strangers. <laughs> I, I myself, oh, whoa. I find myself my voice changes and I'm like I'm higher and there was a situation I don't know I was at a like a gathering I was just talking to it was a I was a guy after guy and my voice suddenly changed vocal fry because I realized that that night or the next day my voice was so sore like Uh why what's wrong with my voice I'm not sick but I lost my voice somehow and I was like oh because it changed the night before when I was around strangers can you demonstrate for our listeners who might not know what vocal fry sounds like? I think it's right now. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, um, let me see. It's like you kind of talk like this, and like that kind of graininess. graininess yeah, crackle. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I thought that was so interesting to learn. Vocal, and then I can't believe there's a term for it. Vocal fry. I know. Yeah, that's 
It's crazy. That's the term. I mean, I kind of resent that it's so specific to women. Like, I think there should be some term that critiques the way that men use their voices. So I'll get on that. Thank you. I'll just start making some field notes and come back with some observations. (laughs) I agree. Gotta make it funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Raina, what's your glisten from the week um, or from this the month? Week, from this month, uh, I'm gonna. This is a. I really want to just experiment with my voice. <laughs> and because I feel like I can figure out this is no. <laughs> Sorry, okay, I'll stop. that's amazing. Um, so there's like singing warm-ups where you do like a little vocal fry. Not that I'm a singer, but anyway. Um, <laughs> That was too fun. This is kind of, it's almost a like repeat glisten, but it's fresh in my mind because I went like yesterday and I think I've told Sam and everybody else here about it before, but I went again to this uh, wrestling show in, in Cadillac, Michigan, which is a, um, um, and it's, it's just this wrestling promotion that's been there since 2003. And something I learned that I didn't know last time I went there, um, is that the guy who does the promotion, uh, his name is Electric Eric Freedom, um, was actually like a, a 90s professional wrestler who was on TV and everything. What? Yeah, and and he ended up moving to this little town in Michigan. Um, and and because he because some people who he did like, they did a touring wrestling show there. I, there was an interview with him that I read. And I'm, someday I'm gonna go like, I'm gonna volunteer as a ring girl if I'm here next summer and say, I will volunteer as a ring girl uh, if like you will talk to me for like 20 minutes about like your entire life. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he, um, you know, he, he came here and they were like, yeah, you should, you should live here. This is great. We love you. you. You know, like, we'll get you some, we'll get you some work. And he was like, yeah, I could start like, like a wrestling school. And he came, there's no work, but the, like he's been living there. And it just like made this like, I don't know, life for himself and his family in Cadillac, Michigan. Um, he has a wrestling school. He does a wrestling promotion every month. It's in the Civic Center and like 200 people come and there was a circus at the same time and they still, like there was literally a circus across the parking lot and they oh still had people God. coming and they just like, I don't know, like a part of what's interesting about professional wrestling is that there's just really one big show that's like this behemoth that just controls everything and then everybody else is just like small fry compared to it. Yeah. So there's this kind of great meta. Um, if you, if you want to talk about or think about like commercialization versus art, like that's, oh, that's what's happening. Um, because it's so like dominated by just one company that makes all the money and everyone else is just, you know, basically doing independent theater um, that hurts you physically <laughs> more than regular independent theater. And I just, every time I think about uh the UWE promotion, uh, like my heart is full of this like warmth about the idea of like just just like making a show that becomes this community center that's for everybody. Um, wow, it's yeah, it's so great. I'm I my mind just started lighting up with what the analogy in the world of theater would be like if there were a big professional show and then all around that were little kind of community pieces and Mm -hmm. what that would do to you know um revitalize theater in in towns the size of Mm -hmm. oh yeah that would be very cool 
Awesome. Well, Mike, listen, is I saw Hair, the musical, <laughs> last night for the first time in my life at um, this local theater company in Traverse City called Parallel 45 or P45, named after the midway point between the equator and the North Pole. Um, and they have, it's a professional theater company in Traverse City. And this summer they have a new venue in the Civic Center um, where they basically took this long abandoned concrete slab in the park and turned it into an outdoor theater. And I have to say this show was super impressive. It was really fun. Um, the production quality was amazing and I had a great time. So any listeners who live anywhere near Traverse City should go check it out. They're doing three shows in rep. So they're doing Hair, Stupid Fucking Bird, which is an adaptation of The Seagull by Aaron Posner, and Little Bunny Foo-Foo <laughs> by Ann Washburn, which is a play for small people. And um, they are running, I think, for another week or so. So go check that out. Sweet. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I like that we both like went to see like shows. You like, saw wrestling guys. and yes. I saw hair. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. That is great. I was yeah. in a show last yesterday. I was in like How did it go? Um it, it was hot and messy and crazy. <laughs> uh I, yeah, so I was in this um like a 12 hour part of a 12 hour comedy festival for the theater I'm part of where I do a uh, sketch comedy and my team, we were in this like four to 6 PM slot and it was just like, I don't know. I don't know how many sketch teams, it was like 10 to 15 sketch teams. All were all cramped in the back of the theater, ready to go on one by one, you know? I mean, oh it's God. like, it's almost wow. like, like the, the craziest feeling I always get is like right before we go on, and I'm just like all hyped up with energy. I'm all just surrounded by people who's just like hopped on energy and excitement. And everyone's just cracking jokes the entire time. At the same time, someone's telling us to shut up because there's a show going on. <laughs> it's like a ragtime, just like crazy. I just love it. It's like, yeah, and I come out just feeling all gross but happy. Um, what else happened Good. yesterday? So, Raina, where can our listeners find you? RainaHardy.com. Oh, she has a website. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. R-E-I-N-A. That's the same way you spell queen in Spanish. Mm. If you can spell queen in Spanish. Uh, Hardy, like the Hardy Boys or ThomasHardy.com. Also <laughs> Google me. Um, and I'm, I'm, I have a genuinely odd name. Just Raina plus Hardy is, is weird. Um, so it's been pretty easy for me to dominate the Google results. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then okay. just a quick reminder for our listeners. So she's got a play going on right now. Stargazers is up at Theater Nova in Ann Arbor until August 4th. And she's also in the middle of a fourth theater rolling world premiere of Annie Jump and the Library of Heaven. So check those out, folks. People, listeners, whoever you are, citizens out there, citizens. <laughs> yeah, and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. 